Morning. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Pastor had another engagement, so you're stuck with me. Um, I don't know. I um, I titled this presentation "Presenting the Character of Christ to the World." I think that's very applicable, considering what we heard this morning. Um, and basically, the big enchilada is Christ's command to love one another as we as he has loved us. Before I get to that, that's probably going to be the shortest part of the message, because before I get to that, I have a couple of backstories. First, a little, little historical backstory, theological backstory. Um, the historical, I'm going to try to connect with both what pastors have been talking about just in the past few weeks, but you'll also see how that connects back further, because the historical backstory is significant, I think, for a couple reasons. First of all, Um, this piece that we're going to talk about this morning is an integral part of the entire story recounted in the Old Testament and New Testament as a whole. Um, If you look through the various books of the Bible, even though there were many uh, human authors involved over about 1,400 years, three different languages across three continents, and in various circumstances, um, there's a unity, there's a thread that goes through there. They're not just a bunch of disconnected stories. They all connect together. Um, so I think it's important to get not only in locally, you know, we're, we've been in Acts, Pastor has been in the book of Acts, with this incident, but how it goes back and connects with other parts of the story uh, and to show that there's a continuity there. And then secondly, for us in particular, um, most of us here are Gentiles, which means we're not Jews. And what we're going to talk about this morning is the spread of the promise that came through Christ to the Gentiles. Up to this point, it had been primarily Jews that were uh, converts. Um, so that's the historical backstory. The theological backstory is also significant because the accounts uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the commands given by Jesus, either directly himself or through his disciples, are important given who Jesus claimed to be, what he accomplished in the context of the, the entire story. And what his first followers, that is the disciples, what they believed and passed on to us as a result. So if you go on to the next slide, uh, this is like just a quick connection to what Pastor's been talking about. So we just had Easter a month ago. So, of course, Jesus enters Jerusalem after Passover with his disciples. He's taken by the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council, convicted of blasphemy. The the, uh, Jews could not carry out capital punishments under Roman rule. So he was brought before the Romans with a charge of sedition. That is, he's claiming to be a king. Um, The connection that Pastor made a few weeks ago was that Pilate tries to give the people an out. He knows the Jews have delivered them, Jesus, to him out of spite, basically, uh, because they don't like him. They don't like his message. Um, And so he is going to release a prisoner to them, and he gives them a choice. Should Should he release Jesus on the one hand, or should he release Barabbas, who is a criminal, a murderer, and an insurrectionist? And the people choose Barabbas. So Christ is, is condemned to death, he's crucified, he's buried, but he's raised. After his resurrection, he appears to the disciples, um, and they gather in Jerusalem to wait for the helper, which he told them was going to come, that is the Holy Spirit. So then Pastor talked about an incident at the beautiful gate of the temple in Jerusalem where Peter and John are headed into the temple and they heal a man who's basically put there at the entrance to beg because he's been a cripple since birth. 
So they heal this man. Everybody knows who he is. Um, and they're amazed. And so they're glorifying God. There's a big uproar. Peter presents the gospel. And basically what he says is, you Jews, you blew it. You know, you had a chance, choice between Jesus and Barabbas, and you chose Barabbas. But the good news is that Jesus, even though he was crucified, he didn't stay dead, he was raised, we've seen him, and now you have the opportunity to choose Jesus rather than Barabbas. That's in Acts chapter 3, most of that story. Um, as a result, then Pastor talked about the incident that immediately followed that, where Peter and John are brought before the same Jewish council, you know, there's a big uproar, um, and so they proclaim before the council that this man who was crippled since birth has been healed in the name of Jesus. Um, and, he, and Peter cites a verse from the Old Testament that talks about the builders, that is, the Jewish leaders, rejected Jesus, but he's now become the cornerstone of the capstone because, he, Jesus, because God raised him from the dead. So the, the Sanhedrin isn't quite sure what to do, but they say, you know what, don't talk about this Jesus anymore. Um, well, the disciples go, they pray for boldness, their prayer is answered, they continue to preach the message, and so this week we're going to talk about, like I said, this has all been happening in Jerusalem. So when the, when the Holy Spirit fell in the second chapter of Acts, that was, um, there was a Jewish feast, so there were Jews from all over the empire, and they hear these unschooled Galileans speaking in all these different languages, glorifying God and telling about Jesus. Um, and then the church gets started there on that day in Jerusalem, and, um, and it's primarily Jews that are con- the first converts to Christianity. Well, now, and this week, we're going to talk about the story continuing with the Gentiles. That is, the promise that was made was not made to the Jews only, but it also includes the Gentiles. And I'm going to look at, um, I point back to part of the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And in you, that is Abraham, all the families or nations, that's what the Hebrew word means, of the earth will be blessed. So it isn't just the, blue, the Jews, it's all the nations. So if we could go to the next slide. Uh, these first four slides in the history are kind of a blow-by-blow blow of the 10th chapter of Acts, which is where this, this incident occurs. Um, and I'm gonna, I've got some context verses that I include with some of the bullet points, but we're not going to go through all of that uh, because we did, it, uh, we did it Saturday night and it was very long. So I decided to have mercy on you. And Joanne was uh, kind enough to print out copies. I don't know who got them. But if anybody wants a copy afterward, we can see that you get it. But basically what happens is there's a Roman centurion. He lives in Caesarea, which is the, kind of the headquarters of that district of the empire. Um, and he's described as a God-fearer and as a devout person. Now, I put on the slide that he was a proselyte or a con- convert to Judaism. That's probably not the case uh, but he, was, he did convert to belief in the Hebrew God and tried to follow the Jewish moral code. Um, but even though he prayed continually, that's how he's described, and he gave alms or offerings to the Jews, there was still a, degree, a significant degree of separation under the Old Testament law between Jews and Gentiles. For example, Gentiles were not allowed within the Jerusalem temple. There was a wall there. So anyway, an angel appears to Cornelius. He says, you know, you need to find this guy, Peter. He tells him where he is. So Cornelius gets a couple of his guys, and he sends them off. Um, And I would encourage you to look through these other verses. And when you look at those, again, I was kind of brief putting them in here. So there's context around those as well. You know, I I encourage you to read more than just those single verses. But if we go to the next slide, so Cornelius sends his guys. uh, Peter's in Joppa. 
Uh, meanwhile, there, Peter sees a vision. God comes to Peter in a vision, and he sees a sheet come down from heaven with all these animals. Well, part of the, a big part of the Jewish law were dietary restrictions. Some animals were considered clean, and they could be eaten, other animals not. So Peter sees the sheet with all these animals, and he hears the command to rise and eat. And Peter says, no, I, I'm not going to do that because I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says to him, don't consider unholy what God has cleansed. And there's considerable New Testament ink spilled over the clarifying the fact that the old Mosaic covenant has been fulfilled in Christ and that there's a new one in its place. And this is not something that comes out of whole cloth. Again, I want to I, I show how this, go, this is part of the plan all along. Um, in Jeremiah 31, God says that he's going to make a new covenant because the Israelites broke the old Mosaic covenant. So this is in mind throughout the Old Testament leading up to the new. So while Peter is, is, comes out of his vision and he's wondering you know, exactly what the significance of this is, the guys Cornelius sent show up at the door. So God tells Peter, you know what, even though these guys are Gentiles, you need to go with, they're going to want you to come with them, you need to go. Um, and I, I just want to point out that you know, like I said, the first converts to Judaism were to Christianity were Jews, Orthodox Jews, um, and they had their religious forms from basically the Mosaic Covenant forward. But they abandoned many of them when when Christianity started to be preached. Um, for example, they didn't they didn't they started to meet on the first day of the week rather than the seventh, which is the Sabbath. And also, a lot of these dietary laws became. They didn't, have, they didn't observe anymore. So you know, whenever you look at, at a large change like that, I think that's a powerful evidence that Jesus did rise um, from the tomb, that they, that they abandoned those practices and took on new ones. Next slide, please. So the next morning, Peter gets up. He goes with these guys. He brings some friends from the place in Joppa where he's staying with him. And he arrives in Caesarea. Cornelius is there to meet him. He's, he's there with his family and with his other believing friends. And the first thing Peter says is, um, you know that it's not lawful for me to be here with you. You know, that's another part of that separation I talked about. Jews were not supposed to associate with Gentiles. Um, so how's that an opener? God tells you to go find this guy. The first thing out of his mouth is, you know, I really shouldn't be here. Well, anyway, he says that God told him that, you know, I shouldn't. That's no longer the case. So he tells the story of Jesus, you know, the things that he did, what was done to him, that he was crucified, that he was buried, that the tomb was found empty, and that he and his fellow disciples and others have actually seen him and eaten with him, and that Jesus told them after he rose to preach that of him, that is Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that in him all who believe receive forgiveness of sins. And again, as I just want to point back, there's a couple of verses here that I'm not going to go spend a lot of time going through, but this was foretold earlier too in Deuteronomy when Moses delivers the law a second time before the Israelites are going into the promised land. Uh, God tells him that he's going to raise up a prophet like Moses. Now what you have to remember is Moses is a, um, there was no other prophet like Moses in the Old Testament, and the way it's described as God spoke to Moses face to face. He didn't do that with anyone else. And he says, I'm going to do that again. He's talking about the one that's going to come, the one that's promised. So if you go to the, to the fourth, the next slide. Um, 
So that's when, so, so as Peter recounts all these things, God reveals that the promise, that is the Messiah that was to come and was to institute that new covenant, is now open to also the Gentiles in the New Testament. So in Acts 10, to 48, the close of that chapter, it says, well, Peter is still speaking. He's still telling the story. He gets to that part about that Christ was rose and we saw him and he told us to preach. And the Holy Spirit falls on those that are listening. Uh, and all the circumcised believers, that is the Jewish friends that he brought, were amazed because the gift is poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues, that is, other languages, and exalting God. So Peter says, surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have been, uh, received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he orders them to be baptized. So, And this is very similar to what happened to Peter and his Jewish friends on Pentecost Sunday when the Holy Spirit fell upon them. So as, as I start to transition now into the theological uh, backstory, I just want to point out that for thousands of years this promise had been percolating, waiting for the appropriate time. Paul in Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of time came, God sent his Son, born of a woman, under the law, so that he may redeem those who were under the law, and we might receive adoption as sons. So the four context verses I have here, again, I'm not going to read through them, but, and there's many others, but they kind of hit the high points. God gives indication in the Old Testament that there's one that's going to be coming. The first one is to Adam and Eve right after they fall. So it's like right when the problem happens, God hints that the solution's in the works already and someone is coming. Then the promise to Abraham, by which all the nations are going to be blessed. The covenant with Israel that Moses delivers at Sinai. And then finally, in um, 2 Samuel, he promises David that the one that comes is going to be descended from him. So if you go to the next slide... So I'm going to, to transition between the historical and the theological, I want to dwell for just a minute on this phrase in that Galatians passage, in the fullness of time. You know, so basically God said, you know, when the time, Paul says, when the time was right, well, when was the time right? Um, Well, here, this graphic shows a picture of the uh, Roman Empire at its greatest extent. Um, So... And at its greatest extent, the Roman Empire had some 5 million square kilometers. That's the, about the land area. And between 70 and 100 million people, which is about a quarter of the population of the planet at that time. Um, well, from the time that Caesar Augustus, if you remember back in Luke, when it talks about the, the uh, tax that the census that he ordered, became the first Roman Empire. And that term, Caesar Augustus, is actually an honorific. It wasn't the na- his name. It means venerable emperor. The first emperor was Octavian, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who proclaimed himself the first emperor in 27 B.C. Um, Prior to that, it was the Roman Republic ruled by the Senate. But from that time forward, about the next 200 or so years, the whole region of the Mediterranean was ruled by what's become known as the Pax Romana, which is the Peace of Rome. That is, the the Romans were able to greatly curtail uh, piracy because the Mediterranean Sea was basically an inland lake. They, they controlled the territory all the way around it. They built several thousand miles of roads to facilitate moving their troops and to facilitate uh, commerce in general. In addition to about 50,000 miles of military highways, they built about 200,000 miles of secondary highways, and many of the Roman roads you can still find if you go to Europe today. That's how good they were. Well, what this did is this facilitated commerce and travel, And if you think about it, this is really unprecedented in the ancient world because 
civilization was pretty fragmented. You know, there were small kingdoms or city-states. And if you were going to travel, so if you were a tradesman, um, you know, you were going to be passing through territory that might belong to your enemies, that might be hostile to you, the people didn't recognize the authorities in wherever you were from. Um, and then at the fringes where between these, these kingdoms and city-states, you know, banditry and, uh, you know, robbers, uh, it, wasn't, it was not easy to travel in the ancient world. But this allows, allowed travel and commerce to happen much easily. So it aided significantly in the spread of Christianity. In fact, Paul in his travels traveled over 6,000 miles which is, you know, for that time period, that's pretty amazing. Um, the other thing that's not on this slide here, but in addition to that, it also made correspondence much more reliable. So if you look through the New Testament, a lot of the books are letters. So they're letters either to individuals, to single churches, or to churches, groups of churches in a region, let's say. Well, the fact that travel was much more stable because the, the countryside was controlled um, made it so that you could, you could write a letter, give it to someone to deliver, and the chances are that they're going to get it is now much improved. Um, and the other thing that this, I think, uh, aided as well is, you know, when you, if you look at something like, um, like the reliability of the New Testament documents, um, when textual critics do, do that kind of analysis, they want to find out how reliable an ancient document is, and this isn't just for the Bible or the New Testament, this is for any ancient document, They look at two things, the number of copies and how close to the originals the copies were. And in both those categories, the the New Testament is orders of magnitude above any other uh, work or group of works. And I think that that, that this Pax Roman also contributed to that because a lot of the reason we have these copies is, you know, so Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians, let's say, and some Christian from some other part of the empire is passing through and he seeks out the local church and and they tell him, you know, Paul just sent us this new letter. Let, let us read it to you. So they read it, and he says, wow, that's great. Can I copy it and take it back to my church? Sure. So, so we get these copies that, that come, and the, the word gets propagated. So now we're ready to get into the theological backstory. And th- theology is just knowledge about God. So it's not, uh, there's nothing magical about it. Um, But the first point that I want to make is that Jesus the Son in the New Testament is fully divine. So the same Yahweh God that appeared to Moses in the burning bush, that that delivered the the law to Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai, is the same one who is now incarnate in God the Son, Jesus Christ. And I think the clearest expression of that is in 1 John um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The most, more significant verse, I think, is three. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So he's the uncreated creator. And then finally, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. So by this, and John tells his readers, uh, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus, the Messiah has come in the flesh is from God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ not with water only, but with water and blood, and in spirit who testifies of this, because the spirit is the truth. So even though Jesus had a human nature, when you talk about Jesus the man, the Messiah is the divine nature. So those two natures are joined in one person. 
So what, the point that I want to make is the majesty, the glory, the authority that God the Father delivers to Israel and the patriarchs in the Old Testament is the same in the New Testament. And I'm, I'll point to just one of these context verses that I have at the bottom here. It's in Exodus 19. This is right before God tells the Israelites the Ten Commandments. And he says to, uh, to Moses, he says, you know, I'm going to come down out of the, out of the mountain I'm going to come down on the mountain and I'm going to speak to the children of Israel and I'm going to tell them my commandments. And what you've got to do is you have to put a set of boundary around the mountain. Nobody can go on the mountain. Nobody can cross the boundary. Um, whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. And what's more is if, if that happens, no hand shall touch him. That is the one that crosses the boundary. But he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. So even though the whole idea of God as a loving God comes through the Old and the New Testaments. You know, so God makes a promise with his, with his people. He basically calls himself a husband to his people. He says his people are inscribed on the palm of his hand. He watches over them. Still, God is God. He is holy and righteous, and we are not. And so God's holy nature cannot be sullied with unrighteousness, and that's that's pretty much the emphasis of any interaction between people and God in the Old Testament. And the, the thing that I want to draw is that that same, that same divine nature is in Christ. Christ is that same God. You know, and the thing is, because of Christianity for the, 2000, the last 2,000 years, we've kind of become sanitized to the idea that, that God is our friend and that we can approach him and speak to him. But that wasn't the way... It was in the ancient world. Um, and in the Old Testament, you know, I read the passage in, um, from Exodus about setting the, the boundaries. Well, what happens is, this is one of the few times when God actually speaks directly to the people. And what happens is, when he does that, after he does that, delivers the Ten Commandments, people say to Moses, you know what? We don't want God to talk to us anymore. You know, if, if God wants us to do something, you go and talk to him, and then you come back and tell us what he said. Because if God talks to us, we'll die. So, I mean, there was this, you know, we don't want to be close to God, you know, because, uh, because of, of who he is. Um, and I, you think back even to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell and they did what God didn't want them to do and they heard the voice of God, what did they do? They went and hide. So we don't want to be exposed to holy God in our unrighteousness. So if you go to the next slide, please. Um, so I want to draw those two things together because we do sing what a friend we have in Jesus. We can approach this unapproachable God, but it's because of Jesus. It's because of what he, who he is and what he did. So our love, as a result of that, for God the Son freely compels our obedience. In 1 John 5, 1-3, John says, Whoever believes Jesus is the Christ is begotten of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child begotten of him. By this we know we love the children of God when we love and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So freely out of our love and gratitude to God for what he did to, for us in Christ, we obey, and as a consequence of that, we, we can overcome the world. And the one verse I want to draw our attention to is Romans 12.20, where Paul says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And the, the idea in view here is, so if you're this person that you're basically treating as a friend, you know, they'll be saying, you know, I don't like this person. 
In fact, I hate this person. In fact, I would do anything I could to hurt this person, but they don't, they're not doing that to me. They're treating me like a friend. So what's going on here? You know, and that, op- that shows the love of Christ and offers an opening that will overcome the blindness that, that the devil puts on people to, to allow the love of Christ to shine into their heart. For whatever is begotten of God overcomes the world, John says in verses 4 and 5 of, chap- uh, of chapter 5. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So who is the one who overcomes the world but the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God? The, the final bullet here is that if our faith is firm, we can't help but overcome. Paul in Romans 8 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? You know, if we have the one who spoke everything into existence on our side, then who can oppo- successfully oppose us? Um, in Mark 9... Um, this is right when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and when he and Peter, James, and John uh, come down, the disciples are involved with a guy who brought his son who's possessed by a demon, and the disciples can't cast the demon out. So Jesus shows up, and the Father says, you know, if there's anything you can do, please help us. And Jesus says to him, if you can, if I can help you, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father says, I do believe, help my unbelief. And the reason I put this passage is I kind of view the Christian walk as that verse, you know, writ large. That is, you know, we, we've decided to, that we're not going to choose Barabbas any longer. We're going to choose Jesus. Um, we realize what he did. We realize that, that we're in rebellion against God. We realize what, who Jesus is and what he did for us, and we decide to follow him. So now out of gratitude and love, we want to obey him. We want to do the things that he tells us to do. We want to not do the things he, doesn't, he tells us not to do. But we're st- we still have our human nature, um, which, is, which wants to do its own thing, which drags us down, which always fights against that, against the Spirit. And so basically the whole Christian walk is this day by day, moment by moment, I do believe, I want to follow you, I want to do the things you say, I want to not do the things you don't want me to do, but I'm having a hard time, and I need your help. So not only do we have the Creator on our side, but we can actually ask Him, petition Him for help when we have trouble, and He will help us. And then in 1 John chapter 2, John says, by the way, if we, if we do sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if we confess that sin to him, he will forgive us and cleanse us. So how can we, not, how can we fail? We have the one who created all on our side. We can go to him and ask for his help, and he promises to help us. And if we do mess up, we can go to him and confess and repent, and he will forgive us and cleanse us. So the next slide here is, is just a reflection I wanted to make Based on that backstory, um, a guy named Phil Keggy wrote this song probably 35 years ago. He didn't pen the words, but he put it to music. Um, it's called The Maker of the Universe, and I, I really like this song because I think it, it really shows all of that coming together. The, make, the, the creator and what he did when he came and died on the cross And the first verse says this, The maker of the universe, as man for man, was made a curse. Claims of law that he had made, unto the uttermost he paid. So the children of Israel broke the covenant, but God fulfilled the covenant. 
in Jesus. His holy fingers made the bow, which grew the thorns that crowned his brow. The nails that pierced his hands were mined in secret places he designed. He made the forest, whence there sprung the tree on which his body hung. He died upon a cross of wood, yet made the hill on which it stood. So here we see this unapproachable, holy, righteous God coming down, getting low, um, becoming a man, living as a peasant, dying the death of a criminal so that we can be united with him. So given that, we come to the message, the enchilada. And like I said, this is probably going to be the shortest part because if we've absorbed all of that, this sort of falls right out. That is, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is that unapproachable one, the holy and righteous one. Yet he humbled himself and he loved us and he came and he did what he did. So, of course, whatever he asks us to do, we want to do that. And in John 15, 9 to 17, this is what Jesus says. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. So he doesn't ask us to do something he's not willing to do. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And, what I, and the thing I want to point out there is he didn't say, these things I have spoken to you so, you, so I could be a killjoy, so you never could have any fun, so you could just not do this and not do that and not do that. No, he does this for our benefit. He wants his joy to be in us and our joy to be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So he shows us what that looks like before he asks us to do it. Um, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know his, what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So we do have a friend in Jesus. God is our friend. But it's only because God came low and did what he did on that cross. Um, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. This is the overcoming the world part. And that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. <clears throat> so with that, I just want to mention some next steps. So whenever we're tempted to become, you know, sometimes we get upset with other people. Um, you know, we get short with them. We get angry. Uh, people do things to us that, that rub us the wrong way. <clears throat> but whenever, you know, people say, you know, when you get angry, count to ten. Well, that's good, but when we count to ten, we should probably think about this. You know, as we're counting, let's remember what Jesus did for us. You know, what he sacrificed for us. What he has and continues to put up with from us. You know, and I think about, you know, whenever we do something that we're sort of proud of, you know, we don't usually have a hard time telling other people about that, but there's a lot of things we do, at least that I do or have done, that, um, that you're not real proud of. You're not, those are not the kind of things you're going to get up and tell everybody what you did because you're ashamed of yourself. You know you did something wrong. Uh, you know, you wish you had done better. Well, God did all that he did knowing everything that we know about ourselves. He was still willing to create and to come down, become low, and redeem us. So finally, let's keep our eyes on the prize. And I want to read 2 Corinthians 4... Uh, 16 to 18, Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart for momentary light affliction. Now this is Paul. 
the one who was shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead, beaten, imprisoned, this is his momentary light affliction, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at things which are seen, but things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So before the worship team comes up and does the last song, um, I've got this reflection slide, the next one. Uh, Michael Card is uh, one of my favorite um, Christian artists, uh, and, and I really like his stuff primarily because when you listen to it, it's, it's got a lot of weight. There's a lot of weight in the songs he writes. Uh, when you listen to him, it's like, you know, it's, sometimes it's like listening to a sermon because, you know, it brings conviction on us. Um, and I've got the quote here at the top from Hebrews, the first chapter, that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. So he's the creator, he's the lawgiver who, show, who fulfilled his own law in coming so that we could be redeemed. So how could we not listen? Uh, they're going to play this song. It's, it's pretty short. Is not he who formed the ear Worth the time it takes to hear Should he who formed our lips for speaking Be not he dead when he speaks Will you not listen Why won't you listen? God has spoken love to us. Why will you not listen? Listen to the sacred silence. Listen to the holy Listen as he speaks through living Parables that must be heard Parables that must be heard Will you not listen? Why won't you listen? God has spoken peace to us. Why will you not listen? Why will you not listen? He spoke a word of flesh and blood. Flesh and blood that bled and died. Bled and died just to be heard. How could you not hear this word? Why will you not hear this word? Will you not listen? Why won't you listen? God has spoken hope to us. How could you not listen? Why will you not listen? How could you not listen?